Hey everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today's case is out of Geneva, Illinois. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. On Sunday, July 6, 2014, at around 6.39 a.m., a train was running its scheduled route through Geneva, Illinois, when the conductor spotted someone lying awkwardly on the tracks ahead. He blew the horn, hoping it might startle the person and they would move out of the way, but the person didn't move at all. Not wanting to hit whoever it was, the conductor had no choice but to initiate an emergency stop. Once the train came to a halt, he got out to try and figure out what was going on, But as he got closer to the person, he realized it was a woman laying on her left side with her head and neck perfectly positioned on the tracks. There was a blank stare in her eyes and a blue discoloration around her mouth. And it was at that moment that the conductor knew he needed to call 911. The first officer on scene was thankfully a sergeant, and it seemed pretty clear to him that not only was this woman dead, she had been for some time, but just to be sure, he called EMS. EMTs rushed to the scene and agreed, noting that her skin was a cyanotic purple color, which is when your skin gets a blue or purple tint to it due to a lack of oxygen in the blood. Aside from the color of her skin, they also noted that her pupils were fixed and dilated and they couldn't find a pulse. They wound up hooking her up to a heart monitor, and while it did detect activity, it was noted as pulseless electric activity, which can apparently register for a short period of time after death. First responders declared that the woman on the tracks was clinically dead and had been for maybe an hour or so, which begged the question, how did she get on the tracks? Because a train had just come through about 30 minutes prior, and her body definitely hadn't been there then. Geneva police had a lot of questions and little to no answers, not the least of which was who this woman was. According to court documents, at around 10.40 a.m., four hours after finding the woman's body, her phone began to ring. It had been neatly placed against some train trestles on the opposite side of the tracks. A detective answered the phone, hoping maybe the person on the other end could tell them who their Jane Doe was, And in doing so, law enforcement accomplished two soul-crushing things. They learned that their victim was a 32-year-old woman named Kathleen King, otherwise known as Kate, and they also informed the caller, who was her sister, that Kate was dead. 32-year-old Kate was a happy-go-lucky, determined, reliable, and relatable woman. If you looked on her social media, you'd find countless posts about her three sons, all between the ages of five and seven, laughing about their quirky differences, like which ones were great at sports and which were destined to grow up to be mathematicians. Kate struggled with mom guilt like the rest of us, but in an every woman kind of way. We all love the crap out of our kids and would do literally anything for them, but we're also constantly worried that we're doing the whole parenting thing wrong. From everything I could find, though, Kate was doing it right. Neighbors told the Kane County Chronicle that her boys were always well-behaved and you could find them playing outside together, and those boys loved their mom. According to a comment left on her obituary, they would actually brag about her to their friends at school. If you have gotten to the point where your children brag about you to their friends, you have reached elite mom status. 
Kate was married to a 47-year-old man named Shadwick King, otherwise known as Shad. He was the father of their three boys. The two had been together for 12 years, which means they started dating when Kate was 20 and Shad was 35. The two lived in a small two-bedroom rancher on Oak Street, but struggled to keep it. According to CBS, their house went into foreclosure in 2011 after they failed to make a payment for six months. They managed to get back on track, at least for a while, until the house went back into foreclosure in 2012 after missing four months of payments. It looks like they were able to keep the house after the second foreclosure notice, but finances didn't seem to get any easier. They filed for bankruptcy in 2013, claiming over $300,000 in debt. That number included their home loan, student loans, and unpaid taxes. CBS reports that a payment plan was eventually set up, but even that was washed when those payments were missed. As far as Kate goes, it looks like she ran her own daycare at one point so she could bring in some extra money during the day while not having to pay for childcare herself. She also worked at a local thrift store while simultaneously working on getting her master's degree. To say that Kate had no quit would be an understatement. As for Shad, he worked in the insurance industry at one point, but took a leave of absence when Kate decided to get another job and join the Army Reserves. With the Army Reserves comes a few months of training. Instead of finding childcare for those three boys or maybe taking on an extra job like Kate had, Shad decided it was best if he stopped working altogether and became a full-time father. Fiscally, that makes zero sense for them, but that didn't stop Shad from deciding now was as good a time as ever to start making some upgrades to their house. A neighbor told the Kane County Archives that Shad was really proud of the new hardwood floors he had put in and the fireplace he had just redone. While Shad was busy living his best reno life, Kate was off at basic training and it seemed like she had found herself. She got married young, had children young, worked several jobs, and had been in college for what felt like forever. Sure, training for the military was hard, but it was also hers and only hers. On her Facebook, you could see her posting about how much she missed and loved her boys and husband back home, but she was also having a really great time with her new army friends. Kate graduated basic training on April 24th, 2014, and was so proud to be able to share that moment with Shad and her sons. Her cover photo was updated to a picture of the five of them walking hand in hand with her smiling in her uniform. Unfortunately, their reunion was short-lived because after basic comes AIT, which is a more specific training focused on what career you want to pursue in the military. Kate set off for Texas the next day, but by June, she was finally back home with a family that missed her. A family that never could have imagined that she would be dead in a little over a month. At this point, the only person who knew about Kate's death was her sister. So her sister did the only thing she knew to do. She called their dad, Kurt. Kurt just so happened to have Kate's kids with him when he got that call. The whole family had gotten together the night before for their annual post-July 4th get-together, and Kurt had offered to keep the boys overnight so Kate and Shad could have a night to themselves. Nothing, and I mean nothing, 
could have prepared Kurt for that phone call. He was hearing what his daughter was saying, but he wasn't believing it. As he was getting that news, Kate's husband Shad showed up at the door. It was the last thing Kurt needed in that moment, and it was weird because Shad was never the one who picked up the boys, it was always Kate. Kurt asked him where Kate was, and Shad told him that they had gotten into an argument and that she'd gone for a run to clear her head. Kate was one of those runners that absolutely lived for it. She even talked about running the Chicagoland Badass Dash with her sister in August, and every single morning without fail, Kate would get up, put on her running clothes, strap her phone into her armband, pop in her headphones, and get lost in a run on the trails at Esping Park, which is actually a small park at the edge of her neighborhood and a park that just so happens to back up to the railroad tracks she was found on. The problem with Shad's story of her being out on a run to clear her head was that Kate wasn't found wearing running clothes. She was wearing loose shorts with an untied drawstring and no underwear on underneath. The bra and shirt she was wearing had been pulled up halfway over her chest, but it was an underwire bra, not a sports bra. To make it even more weird, that underwire bra had been twisted before it was clasped. She was wearing running shoes, but it was muddy from a rain the previous night, and while first responders had mud all over their shoes, Kate didn't have any on hers. And there was something off about one of her socks. It had been put on upside down, meaning the heel of her sock was bunched up at her ankle. None of that sounded like the outfit of a seasoned runner. Kate did not have a small chest, and running in an underwire bra would have been hard on her back. The twist in that bra would have made it uncomfortable to say the least, and her upside-down sock would have been obnoxious. It would have been sliding down with every stride she took, and that bunch at the front of her ankle might have even been painful. None of these were fashion faux pas that go unnoticed. Those are things that you catch when you're still getting dressed and chalk it up to not having your morning coffee yet. But based on Shad's story, we're supposed to believe that she went out for a run like that. The clothes were one thing, but there was more about the scene that seemed off. Kate was a creature of habit, and like we mentioned earlier, she took her earbuds, phone, and armband with her every time she ran. The problem was that armband and her earbuds were nowhere to be found, and she also didn't have her contacts in. Her phone was found neatly placed on those tracks, but according to court documents, there were zero fingerprints on it, not even Kate's. If she didn't have her armband with her, we can only assume she was holding her phone, but how do you hold a phone and it not become a smudgy fingerprint mess? The more police learned, the less they believed Kate ever went on a run that morning, and the more they believed that the scene at the tracks had been staged. Back at Kate's dad's house, Kurt told Shad that Kate wasn't on a run, that she was dead. Court documents state that Chad never asked Kurt where his wife was or what happened to her. Instead, he responded with, I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything. Something just did not feel right in that moment. So when Kate's sister called her dad back and told Kurt not to let Chad leave with those kids, he was 100% on board. Unfortunately, Chad was not a fan of that decision, which is where a second police department comes in. Police in another jurisdiction responded to Kurt's house for a complaint that he wouldn't let Shad leave with his kids. It was accurate information that Kurt was not sorry about in the least. 
This department had no idea what had gone on earlier that morning. They didn't even know about Kate's death, so they separated the parties to try and figure out what was going on. Shad told the officer that he and his wife had gotten into an argument about a man that she'd met in the military, that he had told Kate that she had to choose between him and that other guy, and at 6.30 a.m., she left the house to go on a run. Shad said that he then left to go pick up the kids from Kurt's house, but no one was there. For whatever reason, he says he then headed to Kate's grandmother's house, but no one was there either, so he headed back to Kurt's. This is all very stupid and for several reasons. First of all, who leaves at 6.30 a.m. to pick up their kids from a sleepover with their grandparents? Nonetheless, if no one was there when Shad got to Kurt's house, why didn't he just make a phone call before deciding to drive what looks like 20 minutes to the next house playing Guess Where My Kids Are? Shad said it was between 9 and 9.30 when he got to Kate's grandmother's house, but that doesn't make a ton of sense either. It looks like it's about a 45-minute drive from Shad and Kate's house to Kurt's house, and a 20-minute drive from Kurt's house to Kate's grandmother's house. That's an hour and five minutes, meaning if he left his house at 6.30 a.m. after Kate left for her run, he should have gotten to her grandmother's house between 7.35 and 7.45 a.m., give or take some door knocking and crack of dawn Sunday traffic, which I'm sure there's not much of. Shad claims he then left Kate's grandmother's house and drove back to Kurt's, getting there while he was on the phone with Kate's sister. We know that call came in at around 10.40, and that should have been a 20-minute drive, so even if he had gotten there at 9.30 at the latest, he should have been back at Kurt's before 10 a.m. There were a hefty amount of gaps in his timeline, but he was going to get another chance to explain all of that at the Geneva police station. Instead of leaving with the kids as Shad had hoped, the boy stayed with Kurt while officers drove him to Geneva for questioning. Court documents state that it wasn't until 20 minutes into their drive that Shad finally asked how Kate had died, and at that point, no one knew. At around 1 p.m. that afternoon, Shad's first recorded interview began, and it was hard for detectives not to notice what they called a fat lip. They asked him how he got it, but according to those court documents, he denied there being any fat lip at all. Shad filled detectives in on that argument he mentioned that he'd had with Kate and said that after she got back from AIT, he learned about a relationship she had with a 22-year-old man she'd met during training. We're gonna call him Ben. Shad claims that he offered Kate a divorce and custody solution where she could take the boys and move to Massachusetts with Ben so long as he got to spend the summers with him. As absurdly generous as that offer seems, he claims that Kate wasn't interested. The night before Kate's death, she, Shad, and the boys had gone to that family get-together and there was some drinking involved. Kate and her sister planned wedding festivities where Kate couldn't wait to be her Pippa and the boys stuck to themselves and did their own thing. Kurt offered to keep the boys, so a little after 10.30, Kate and Shad left but weren't ready to call it a night. They went to a local bar where they drank some more and a neighbor bought the two a round of shots. Kate and Shad left around closing time, getting home at around 2 a.m. After they got home, Shad told detectives that he saw Kate texting someone while he was brushing his teeth. He says she wound up putting the phone down where he could see the messages and said they were romantic texts between her and Ben. As emotionally mature as Shad claims to be as far as this affair goes, which he says he has just accepted at that point, 
he decided to take Kate's phone and fire off several texts telling Ben to leave her alone and that she was going to bed with her husband. You might think this would cause some kind of argument between the two, but no. Shad says that he and Kate stayed in bed and talked until 5 a.m. about her dreams of going to officer candidate school and even a possible move to Georgia. After that, he says he fell asleep for about an hour before Kate got up to go on a run. I'm still waiting for the part where he confirms that they argued like he said before and that she went on a run to clear her head. Because no one knew Kate's cause of death at that point, that was the extent of Shad's first interview. Detectives gave him a ride home and asked if they could take a look around, to which Shad agreed. The first thing they noticed was that the house was a mess, and Kate was not a messy person. On the kitchen floor, there were these odd crunchy leaves, and it was odd because it was the middle of June, and they had noticed that Kate had dried leaves in her hair and on her body when she was found leaves that did not match the ones on the ground around her. It was worth remembering, but there wasn't much they could do about it. Something seemed off, but they had no solid proof that a crime had even occurred at this point, and while the house was messy, there was no obvious sign of a struggle and clearly no sign of a cleanup. It took two days, but an autopsy was performed, and the medical examiner determined that Kate had died from asphyxiation. All forms of asphyxiation had been ruled out, except for manual, which meant that they believed Kate had been strangled to death. Obviously, it was time to have another chat with Shad, and in his second interview, he offered a little more insight into the weird-ass decisions that he made the morning of Kate's death. In his first interview, we heard that he and Kate had talked about her big dreams until 5 a.m., but in this interview, he said that he actually left the house at 4.45 a.m. to go to a freaking Chase ATM of all places. Because who's not running cash errands before the sun comes up on a Sunday? And conveniently leaving that out of their first version of events. Shad got to the ATM at 5.03 a.m. and pulled out $500 and what he called pocket money, claiming he needed it to get some repairs done on his truck so he could start working again. Odd choice since debit cards exist, and from some choice wording in court documents, that $500 might have been damn near all the money they had. He tried withdrawing another $40 but was declined. He then came back home and says that Kate got up and left for her run. What he did after that gets a little bit messy and discombobulated even in court documents, but it looks like he may have taken a 30-minute nap before getting up to get some gas at 7.45 a.m. At some point in his wonky timeline, he says that he drove around for 20 minutes, came home, took another nap for about an hour or so, then woke back up again to head out and pick up the boys. In this interview, Shad told detectives that he left his house at around 9.30 so he could grab some donuts and pick up the kids from Kurt's house. Unfortunately for him, he picked up those donuts at 8.52 a.m. and frankly, it just does not track with every other timeline that he's thrown out there. We know Shad previously said he went to Kurt's house, but no one was home, so he trekked on over to Kate's grandma's house to see if the boys were there, and it seemed odd that he hadn't just called to see where everyone was. But in this interview, we learn that he did call someone, but it wasn't Kurt, it was Kate. 
Shad claims that he called Kate to get his own father-in-law's number. I repeat, he did not have the phone number of his father-in-law of 10 years. When Kate didn't answer, he took to Facebook to message her sister to try and get Kurt's number again. All I'm hearing here is that he also didn't have his sister-in-law's number, or for whatever reason he felt like Facebook Messenger was the prime means of communication in that situation. The message was so strange that getting it is what prompted Kate's sister to call her that morning, only to have the call answered by a detective. At this point in his second interview, detectives knew Kate's cause of death, but they still hadn't shared it with Shad yet. Shad stated that she must have been hit by a car, and that's when they told him that her death was not an accident, that she had died from asphyxiation, and her death was now a homicide investigation. Court documents state that Shad repeatedly and sometimes indignantly stated, I'm not capable of that. I did not do it. I would not hurt that woman. He may have believed what he was saying, but detectives did not. Through interviews with other friends and family members, investigators learned that Shad might have had a bit of a temper and maybe wasn't the easygoing saint that he portrayed himself to be. According to the Chicago Tribune, a month prior to Kate's death, she had to get a new phone after Shad threw it in a lake when he saw some texts he didn't like. A post on Kate's Facebook page from June 19th reads, Lost my phone Tuesday. PM me your number, y'all. RIP Samsung. Family members also recalled Shad making a point to announce the possibility of a divorce to everyone and telling her future brother-in-law that he might miss their wedding due to his own marital problems. At the bare bones of this investigation, the only person detectives felt had the means, motive, and opportunity to kill Kate was Shad, and it did not help that his timeline was bizarre and constantly evolving. Investigators filed for an official search warrant to look through their house again and found Kate's earbuds and armband, a plethora of sports bras, dried leaves throughout the house, including in the washing machine, which now contained a wet children's comforter and pillowcases. A canine was called in and alerted to the smell of human decomposition in the back seat of Shad's vehicle. With that, police took him into custody and charged him with two counts of first-degree murder. Shad pled not guilty. Shad's attorney filed for a request for a speedy trial, which in Illinois means that the prosecution has to have all of their ducks in a row in 120 days. That is one hell of a risk to take as a defense attorney, but it also puts pressure on the prosecution. The trial did not wind up happening in 120 days, but by February of 2015, the jury was seated and ready to hear both sides. According to the Daily Herald, the prosecution argued that Shad killed Kate in a jealous rage and then staged her body to make it look like she had died while out on her morning run. Or maybe he hoped her neck on the track would get hit by a train and destroy all evidence of a strangulation. Shad and Kate had been around a handful of people the night before her death, and not one of them remembered seeing any bruises on her, but she had several on her body when she was found on the tracks. The medical examiner testified to finding a red linear mark across her neck consistent with being choked, a bruise under her chin consistent with someone's hand being wrapped around her neck or her trying to pry someone's hands off of her neck, 
a bruise on her jaw, and another on her upper left arm. The ME stated that there were no injuries to Kate's neck tissue, but noted that you won't always find that in strangulation deaths, which she absolutely believed this was due to the hemorrhaging found in her eyes, throat, and tongue. When it comes to circulation, your blood is flowing all throughout your body, but when that circulation is cut off or compressed, that blood stops circulating and becomes pressurized. That pressure forces the blood to try and find somewhere to go, which can cause hemorrhages within the area of compression. When it comes to strangulation, you'll often find those hemorrhages in the victim's eyes, face, neck, tongue, and throat. While the medical examiner who conducted Kate's autopsy had no doubt she had been strangled, the defense's expert witness, a forensic pathologist, disagreed. They didn't think Kate had been murdered at all. The defense argued that Kate had not died from asphyxiation and had instead died of sudden arrhythmia death syndrome, or SADS, which is a fancy way of saying her heart stopped. Their expert claimed the SADS was brought on due to a combination of stress, lack of sleep, caffeine consumption, and a blood alcohol content of, get this, 0.15. They were legitimately suggesting that Kate went on a freaking run on a rocky hill next to an active train track with a BAC of almost twice the legal limit, and it wasn't alcohol poisoning that killed her. No, no, no. They believed her heart just gave up. In order to believe Kate died of SADS, you also have to believe that she died on those tracks and that her body wasn't moved. That becomes a problem when you consider the lividity on her body when she was found. When you die, the blood in your body stops circulating and starts to pull in the direction of gravity. If someone is lying face up when they die and they stay in that position for a period of time, you can expect to find red or purple discoloration, aka lividity, on their back. Kate was found lying on her left side, but had lividity on her right leg and the back of her neck. That lividity would suggest that for a period of time following her death, her legs were likely positioned to the right with her neck back. Her neck being positioned back would correlate with a trail of dried saliva and stomach contents or blood that traveled up the left side of her cheek. Liquid cannot defy gravity, and it takes a hot minute to dry it into place. That trail of dried saliva going up her face and the lividity on her right leg and back of her neck did not match up with her being found on her left side. As the trial progressed, a former FBI profiler took the stand and he had studied every aspect of this case, from Kate's lifestyle to her patterns and a complete analysis of that scene. According to the profiler, Kate's watch and statements from her oldest son confirmed that she usually ran on the trails at Esping Park and never ran by those train tracks. In order to even get to the tracks, she would have had to walk past the trails, through a baseball field, through someone's backyard, and through a line of trees. The tracks were then elevated on a rocky hill, which is probably the last place anyone with a BAC of 0.15 is going to try and run. As for the dried leaves found in Kate's hair and on her body, the profiler stated that they matched the leaves found in her house. He concluded in his expert opinion that he believes the scene at the tracks was staged. We know that Kate didn't have any mud on her shoes, but there were also no drag marks on the ground, her clothes, or on her body. So how did she get there? I had to do some digging, but in the fifth or so court document I found, it stated that Shad was six foot four and 270 pounds. It stated that their combined weight was 400 pounds, leaving 130 pounds for Kate. Do with that information what you will. 
I pulled up a map to see how Kate's body could have gotten there since no one reported seeing neither she nor Shad in the park that morning, and there's a tiny little cul-de-sac with five houses on the left side of it that runs adjacent to the tracks where Kate was found. To get there from Kate and Shad's house, you would take one right and two lefts, never having to get on a main road. All someone would have to do is park on that street, pull her body out of the back passenger side door, there's no houses on the right-hand side, and carry her through a thin line of trees and up onto the tracks. From a car pictured in that cul-de-sac to the train tracks, it measures about a whole 60 feet. If all of that was done before 6.39am when she was found, there's a solid chance that no one would have even been awake on that street to have noticed anyone parked there. I should mention, though, that court documents state that at 6.25am, Kate's phone pinged in the vicinity of her house, and nine minutes later, at 6.34am, it pinged about 200 feet east of where her body was found, but still in the area of the tracks. If the scene was staged, which the prosecution believes it was, the psychology would absolutely track. The profiler testified that when it comes to staged scenes, the offender is generally someone close to the victim. According to FBIRetired.com, that's because there's usually no reason for a stranger to stage a scene because they're not going to be on the initial list of suspects. Sure, they might try to do it to throw off the investigation, but statistically, it's less likely. According to Psychology Today, less than 10% of all homicides are committed by strangers, so let's take a look at who Kate was around in the hours before her death. She had spent time with her family at her dad's house before leaving to go to that bar. She and Shad went to that bar and ran into a neighbor while they were there. Shad and Kate left the bar together and went home alone. At the house, Shad admits to seeing texts between Kate and Ben and sending off a few texts from him from Kate's phone. Ben's last text to Kate had been a goodnight text at 2.39 a.m. Shad claimed he saw Kate texting someone while she was brushing her teeth and that when she put the phone down, he could see that they were romantic texts to Ben, which prompted him to take the phone and text Ben from it. The problem with that is that the text Shad sent from Kate's phone didn't start until 4.18 a.m. And they weren't just him telling Ben to leave Kate alone and that she was going to bed with her husband. No, according to court documents, Shad sent 11 texts to Ben over the next 35 minutes until 4.57 a.m., claiming to be actively having sex with Kate. We know Shad was at the Chase ATM at 5.03 a.m., and the closest one to their house looks to be about a 10-minute drive away, so we can safely assume that he took her phone with him to pull out his car-fixing cash. He still had her phone at 5.14 a.m. because that's when Kate used her Kindle to message Ben and let him know that he should be wary of any strange text or calls because Shad had her phone. Shad claims he gave the phone back to Kate, but investigators did not believe him. If she had gone through the trouble of finding another device to let Ben know what was going on, why hadn't she called him or texted him when she got it back? 
Frankly, why hadn't she called or texted anyone at all? And why weren't there any fingerprints on it? Whatever happened to Kate likely happened between that 5.14 a.m. Facebook message to Ben and 6.39 a.m. when the conductor spotted her on the tracks. That time frame just so happens to coincide with the beginning of Chad's bizarre napping schedule and trips to the gas station, the ATM, the donut shop, Kurt's house, and Kate's grandmother's house. Shad wind up taking the stand in his own defense and told the jury that in the 12 years he and Kate had been together, he had never hurt her and he definitely hadn't killed her. The jury didn't buy it though, and after two weeks of trial, found Shad guilty of killing his wife. His sentencing was set for the following month, but before that could happen, his attorney was already filing for an appeal. She argued that the profiler wasn't qualified to testify to some of the things he did, specifically the comments about Kate's cause of death since he wasn't a forensic pathologist, and the fact that the leaves found in her hair and on her body had come from their home. As it turns out, testing was done on those leaves, but the results couldn't conclude that they specifically came from her house. The wording was really specific about this in the court document, and it sounds like the leaves may have matched the leaves from her house, they just couldn't conclusively determine if they were from the same tree. We do know from earlier though that they did not match the leaves from the tracks. The judge decided that regardless of the appeal arguments, Shad's guilt had been proven beyond a reasonable doubt, and he was sentenced to 30 years in prison with no chance of early release. That might sound like the end here, but it's not. Shad's attorney appealed that decision, and it worked. In 2018, the state appellate court agreed that while the profiler had an incredible background with the FBI, even supervising the behavioral analysis unit and receiving training in forensic pathology, he was not a forensic pathologist and could not legally testify to the manner in which Kate was killed. Because each side had a different argument, strangulation versus sudden death, the appellate court deemed that the profiler's testimony was what tipped the scale of the jury and Shad was granted a new trial. This was big news for him, but the bottom line here was that the facts of the case weren't going to change. The profiler testified to several facts in this case, and someone who was a forensic pathologist could review the case and say the exact same thing. As it grew closer to Shad's new trial date, news hit that the Kathleen Zellner was going to be his new representation. If that name sounds familiar, it's probably because she's the attorney heading up the Stephen Avery appeal from Making a Murderer. I was a little taken back when I found out that she was taking on Shad's defense, and even more taken back by how openly she proclaimed his innocence, tweeting things like, Exoneration number 21 is right around the corner. The retrial of Shadwick King 6-6 cannot wait. And closing arguments yesterday in Shadwick King's case. Innocent man tried again without a scintilla of evidence. Okay. Some of her tweets relating to Shad's case look like they might have been deleted but are still displayed or partially displayed on her website, like the one that says Shad turned down some kind of deal because innocent men don't deal. There's no doubt that Zellner went to bat for him and hard, but for someone who's so renowned for her skills in voir dire or picking a jury, I was surprised that she went for a bench trial, meaning only a judge and no jury would decide Shad's fate. You don't see that happen often, but when you do, it's usually when a defense is worried that a jury won't be able to sympathize with their client, or you're hoping that a judge will be able to weed out any emotion and focus only on the law. 
In January of this year, 2023, news broke that the judge had reached a decision. Shad was found guilty for a second time and sentenced once again to 30 years in prison. Documents have surfaced regarding his unhappiness with that result, but we can only hope that this is finally the end of the back and forth of trial injustice for Kate's friends and family. If any news breaks following this episode, I will be sure to update you. For photos pertaining to this case, Check out Kate's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley and join us there on Mondays at 10 a.m. Eastern where we go live and talk about each week's case. To get ad-free and bonus episodes, subscribe to our Apple Premium or head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime where for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. If you love the podcast, feel free to leave a review. It makes my day every single time. And if you have a case you'd like to hear covered, share with Big Mad True Crime on social media because all cases are covered by listener request. I'll be bringing you a brand new case next week, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. We're officially at the end of this episode, which is where I tell you how much I love you. You're beautiful. You smell like pine needles and you have a face like sunshine. Yes, I took that from Bridesmaids, but I mean every second of it. You're the best. I hope you have a great freaking day. You're wonderful people. I love your hearts, your big, beautiful hearts. And I care.